As we say every week, our prayer is that you are welcomed well and that you are fed well. Um, Please know we're not a perfect church, but by grace, we are a church that loves God and his word with all of our hearts, and we are a a church that is pursuing Jesus faithfully. That's our prayer. So our prayer is that you are here today. You will be blessed. We continue on our journey through the book of Philippians, so I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. If you're visiting with us, we're just taking portions of this amazing book. We're explaining it. We're seeing it interpreted. And then we're trying to make it applicable to our lives. Building practical application for every day of our lives. The last two months we've interacted with what's up on the screen. This concept of a gospel-centered life. Meaning, I mean, this concept of gospel-centered, sometimes it's just thrown out there, kind of one of these Christianese-type phrases. What does it mean to be gospel-centered? It means this. The gospel of Jesus Christ has transformed and is transforming everything about us. Everything we think, everything we say, everything we do, everywhere we go, everyone we interact with. We're going to continue this conversation through the book of Philippians, but primarily in chapter 1 here. This gospel-centered life, everything about us is consumed with this thought. I am simply a sinner saved by God's amazing grace. I'm not all that in a bag of chips, as we say often. As I look at my life, I am simply a sinner saved by God's amazing grace. But it doesn't stop there. As we look at this book, to be gospel-centered means I'm going to be grounded in the gospel for my salvation. But then every step of my life spiritually is saturated with God's gospel grace. I can't take another step in my life without God's grace. That's this book. Being gospel-centered in everything we do. To be gospel-centered simply means to be gospel-transformed. To be gospel-centered means to be gospel-focused. As we, get through, as we walk through this book, we're going to see how this translates even into the practical things we do as a body of Christ. So often the secondary issues in the, bo- in the, in the body of Christ tend to weasel their ways up to primary issues. And we want to be gospel-centered for God's grace and glory If you turn your hand out over this morning, you'll see on the back kind of a bit of a review. I know there's some visiting with us this morning, so we'll kind of review this. So far through verses 1 through 20 in chapter 1, we have seen the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ compels meaningful relationships. The gospel encourages us not to live our Christian lives on an island or up in a tower by ourselves. The gospel of Jesus Christ compels us to meet with others in this room, to grow together. The gospel of Jesus Christ in verses 3 through 8 encourages an attitude of gratitude. In verses 9 through 11, the gospel of Jesus Christ empowers overflowing love in the body of Christ, that your love may abound more and more, Paul says, In verses 12 through 14, the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms our view of suffering. 
In fact, I had some great conversations with some in this body that have gone through some tough times of suffering the last couple weeks. What a joy it is to hear of their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. You know what the gospel of Jesus Christ teaches us? That through suffering, God has given us an opportunity to proclaim Jesus Christ and to grow. As we continued on, we saw that the gospel of Jesus Christ prompts selfless rejoicing. And then last week, we looked at this. The gospel of Jesus Christ compels resolve in the life of believers. So so what a fun time we had last week just talking about this resolve. Resolve not as in finding a solution or fixing a problem, Resolve not as in the world does not resolve around us, as my daughter Eva said a week and a half ago, but resolve as in determination, confidence, the conviction of a true believer. So as we walk through the the book of Philippians, as we come through the end of chapter one, we see this amazing resolve in the life of the apostle Paul. We realize that We're not to put Paul up on a pedestal. We do exactly what Paul says, though, to follow his example example only as he follows Jesus Christ. So we recognize the Apostle Paul's life, and as he is pursuing Jesus Christ, hey, we're jumping on board. We are pursuing Jesus Christ. This resolve that the Apostle Paul had just overflows in this passage. I'll spare the pictures of resolved dads changing diapers this morning. (laughs) Um, I will say this, though. I came this close to snapping some pictures this week just to prove those corners on Old 44, the resolve of moms taking their kids to school. It's amazing as you go around those corners to see just the determination in the face of the moms as you're coming the opposite way. I had my phone in my hand ready to take some pictures, but I refrained. By God's grace, I refrained. I will say this, though. Um, Resolve is a big deal in the scriptures, and we continue on through this discussion. Last week we saw this lives, a a gospel-centered life lives with a resolve to keep trusting in God. Not just to trust in God once, to check off that we trust in God, but to keep trusting God, and to keep trusting God, and to keep trusting God. The human author of this passage, the Apostle Paul, in imprisonment, with impending death, writes of his resolve to trust God and to keep trusting in God. He may die within days, he knows, but he says, I'm going to keep trusting my Savior. Just like many of us in this room, through the trials that we go through, need to live with this resolve through the Holy Spirit to keep trusting in God and keep trusting in God and keep trusting in God. Last week, we also saw Paul's resolve to magnify Christ. Here's the kind of the the key idea last week was when people zoom into my life, do they see Jesus Christ more clearly? Just like those zoom functions on on our smartphones where you can take a picture and zoom right in there. When people zoom into our lives, do they clearly see Jesus Christ? The person and work of Jesus Christ transforming our lives. Well, today I want us to advance this concept of resolve through this topic, the topic of treasure. That's an interesting talk, topic. 
I want to say this, ever since I was a young dude, I love the thought of treasure hunting. Anybody in here want to just admit that you like thinking about treasure hunting? Okay, some in this room. Okay, we'll just admit that this entire West Coast was built on treasure hunting. All right, treasure hunting's a big deal. But as a youngster, I would sit there and dream about this treasure hunting. You may have had these same thoughts, walking along the beach and seeing the little bit of a wooden thing there and digging in and all of a sudden a little bit more of it exposed and a little bit more of it exposed and opening it and just seeing the gleaming rubies just overflowing. You ever had? Okay, maybe I'm the only one. <laughs> this was like last week for me. <laughs> just, uh, Maybe it's going on a camp out with your family in the woods somewhere and you, you wonder what's underneath those trees over there. What, what bandit group hid all of their gold coins right under that rock in that cave? Have you ever thought that way? Treasure, it's a big deal. I love thinking about these treasures. Um, I love thinking about recently found treasures. So we can think about the pirates' treasures that are found we can go back in history and see these massive treasures. I love recent ones. Here's one that was found three years ago. Any of you heard the story of this one? Northern Italy. A library, uh, sorry, it was a theater going through demolition. This demolition, as they're going through that, they found this little soapstone jar. The jar cracked open, then they found over 300 coins from the Roman 4th and 5th century era in pristine shape, stacked up in there. I mean, the London Times says this, this particular treasure, treasure is inestimable. You can't really put a price tag on it, but if you would, it would be in the several millions of dollars, I suppose. This treasure found three years ago. I mean, maybe as I'm telling that story, maybe some of you are like, ah. I wonder what's in the basement of our house. How many of you thought that? I wonder what's underneath that floor in my house, that crawl space. There's got to be a jar. And I mean, in this same treasure, they found this jar, and over here they find another jar, and in it had a gold bar. I'm like, okay, I'd be okay with just the one with a gold bar in it. That'd be cool. But treasure, here's another one. I love this story. This is called the Hawksney Hoard. Um, this was found less than 30 years ago in Hawksney, England. There's this guy named Eric Laws. He's, uh, or sorry, Peter Watling, a carpenter. He lost his hammer in a field. So what does he do? He calls up his old buddy who's a gardener and says, man, I lost my hammer. I really like this hammer. This hammer is my treasure. I like this thing. I use this all the time. Would you bring your metal detector in this field? Let's see if we can find it. So these two dudes set out to find the hammer. Instead of finding a hammer, this pair stumbled upon a buried wooden chest nearly completely decayed, and it consisted of 569 gold coins, 14,272 silver coins, 24 bronze coins, 29 items of gold jewelry, 98 silver spoons and ladles, four silver bowls and ladles, and a silver beaker and vase. I'm like, I'd be fine with just one silver coin. 
1993, the Hoxney Hoard was estimated at $1.7 million. Today, maybe roughly around $3 million. We're talking about a, a carpenter and a gardener. And yes, they found the hammer. <laughs> and for me, I'm thinking, huh, what are we doing tomorrow after our uh, Labor Day barbecue, right? Let's get the shovels, kids. Here we go. I mean, that's how we think. We like to talk of these treasures. But I want to say that talking in the language of treasure is not simply something we do these days. It's also in the Bible. Before we even get to that, though, this one. Anybody recognize this? The thrill of the chase. Anybody recognize this? Okay, brothers and sisters, this is current. This is happening right now. This dude right here, Forrest Fenley. Sorry, sorry, Forrest Fenn. About 10 years ago, he was dying of terminal cancer, and he was a multimillionaire, so he wanted to engage families in finding treasures. So what he did, he lived in Santa Fe, New Mexico, he assembled a chest of $2 million worth of gold nuggets, coins, and jewelry, and he hid it somewhere between Santa Fe, New Mexico, and Montana in the Rocky Mountains. I mean, mass area of land. And in that, he was, he was an entrepreneur. This guy knew what he was doing. He wrote a book with a poem in it. And this poem shares, if you transcribe the poem and you look into it, it will show the exact location of the treasure. I mean, this is going on right now. Four people have died looking for this treasure. This, this poem is on the, right in the middle of that deal. My wife and I may or may not have diligently studied this poem. <laughs> and actually, as you look, you look at this online, it is crazy because where we used to live in the mountains of Colorado, a lot of people think it was within 25 miles of where we used to live in the mountains. So I'm going to tell you, on my hunting trips, guess what I kept a keen eye on? That box looking for that treasure. This is something that's happening right now. I'm surprised the guy's still living and someone hasn't gone and said, show me the treasure, right? But it's out there. Along with the book and the, the poem, there's the map. And this guy's made a bunch of money selling his maps because people are looking for this treasure. Treasure's a big deal. Treasure's a big deal in the scriptures. And we're jumping right into the scriptures here. Honestly, as you go through the concept of treasure through the Old Testament, it's, it's awesome. As you go through the book of Proverbs and you talk about treasure with Solomon. I mean, you travel into the New Testament. I want to say one of the most lively passages in all of the scriptures talking about treasure is from Jesus Christ himself in Matthew 13. Maybe you recognize this passage. Let me just read these. You can maybe jot down Matthew 13, 44 and 45. He says this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. This is Jesus. And he says this, Which a man found, and he found it, and then he covered it up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Why? Because he knew what was in that field. Again, the kingdom, Jesus, the next verse says, again, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought that pearl. What's the point here? 
Why start a sermon off with this concept of treasure? Because in our minds, we think of treasure being possibly something you put in the ground, something to monetary value, or a jewel, or jewelry. As you walk through the scripture, you know what treasure is? Treasure is what you value most in life. Treasure is what you stamp value to. Last night, talking with the kids about it, Kara very wisely said, treasure is what you think is most important in your life. Treasure, treasure is what you value supremely. And as we jump into Philippians chapter 1 this morning, I want us to read this passage through this concept of treasure. The Apostle Paul I believe honestly as he interacted with the scriptures of the Gospels, because Paul could have interacted with the scriptures of the Gospels. As he was reading through the accounts of Matthew 13, I believe the Apostle Paul would have said, yes, Matthew, Jesus is my treasure. I mean, Matthew very possibly written five years before Paul is penning the words to Philippians, about seven years. And Paul reading this and then in his own mind thinking, Jesus is my treasure. Can we read this passage this morning, Philippians 1, 21 through 23, with this concept of treasure in our mind? Paul says this, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Last week we started by looking at the first half of that book. We finished by looking at the first half of that verse. Verse 22, Paul says, For if if I am to live in the flesh, that's his body. It's not talking about the sinful flesh as we find like in Romans 6 through 8. This is talking about his body. If I am to live in my body, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. And then we get a glimpse into his heartbeat, and he says, oh, that's so much better. What do we see in this passage? I mean, in these three verses, we find a man who's devoted his life to the cause of Jesus Christ apprehended on the road to Damascus, a man who, as we went through 2 Corinthians 4 a couple weeks ago, we see this man was beat up for the cause of Jesus Christ. His life was completely transformed by the gospel. And now he's saying, I treasure this Jesus more than anything in my whole life. I treasure this Jesus even more than life itself. And when I get into the next life, I'm going to be with the one that I treasure most. That is the Apostle Paul. Can we dig a little deeper into these verses? I want us to kind of tag ourselves into this concept this morning. A gospel-centered life lives with this resolve. It is a resolve to eternally treasure Christ more than anything else in our lives. I mean, I, let's just walk through the text. Paul says this, for to me to live is Christ. I mean, in a very practical sense, Paul is saying this, if I'm going to live through this trial and impending death, I'm still going to serve Jesus. I mean, that's, that's what's going on immediately in Paul's life. He's chained to a guard all the time. By the way, you ever feel like someone's in your bubble? <laughs> 
You ever need your alone time? For me, sometimes that's hunting. I like to just get out there and be alone, or fishing, just get out there and be alone. Paul, at this point in his time, has zero alone time. He is chained to a guard. I mean, he can't even do just the natural things of life on his own. How embarrassing is that? And Paul, in this passage, is saying, through all of that, if I make it through this, still breathing, my heart still beating, I'm still going to serve Jesus. In my mind, I go back, some of you are reading through the book of Acts, I go back to when the apostle Paul was stoned and left for dead. He's, he's very close to this concept he talks about in this passage, which is death. Super close to death. He gets up, about a bit dazed, probably a pretty massive concussion, and he walks back into town to talk more of Jesus. What is Paul saying? If, if I make it through this imprisonment, if I'm still breathing, in a very practical sense, I'm still going to preach Jesus till the day I die. So in a practical sense, that's what's happening in Paul's life, but also in a broader sense, what do we see? This is the whole mentality of the Apostle Paul. For me to live is Christ. Last week we talked about it in terms of this big equal sign. You remember this? If we put your name and you put an equal sign and you kind of put a blank there, what would you, could you possibly put in that line? I mean, even in the, I love this because the Greeks actually had this slogan, life is good, which is funny because it makes its way on some of our clothing. You see the simple life stuff, life is good. That was a Greek slogan, life is good. You know what Paul is doing here, I believe? He's even taking a Greek slogan and saying, okay, life is good, but I want to tell you something else. Life is Christ. For me to live is Christ. There's a big equal sign in the Apostle Paul's life. And he says, life equals Christ. Paul's life equals Christ. Last week we talked about that. What could you put in that blank? Fame? Fortune? Happiness? We're so driven by happiness and comfort. I mean, we live in a culture where comfort is supreme, brothers and sisters. And, and Paul's saying here, any of those things you could put in that line in a very practical sense. Comfort, what about success? What about children's success? Your children, your grandchildren. For me to live is to make my family successful. Hey, that's a good thing. But that's not the superior thing. Security, comfort, health, family, sport, food, hobby, and Paul is saying here, for me to breathe another breath means another breath to treasure and exalt Christ. Can we say the same thing? Paul says, for me to live is Christ. But then he goes on, and we're going to advance this thought today a little bit. And to die is gain. Because life equaled Christ for Paul, he was not devastated with the thought of death. This is so anti-culture. This is so anti-way of practical thinking. Death is one of those things in our lives that is, is the most scary thing to breathe our last breath. I mean, it is the most dynamic tool that Satan has. 
is death. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, we find that Jesus Christ conquers death, brothers and sisters in Christ. There is victory in death. And Paul says, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Paul, because he treasured Christ above all else, he could not just think about death, he could run towards death with a smile that beamed from ear to ear. Why? Because this Jesus that he treasured in life, he would now see him face to face. And Paul dynamically says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. There's a It's kind of a thought from Paul. If God leaves me here, praise him because I can keep laboring for him. If God takes me home, praise him because I will see him face to face. I think that in 2 Corinthians, Paul kind of advances this. If you want to write down 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 18, I just want to take a couple minutes and read through this passage. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul says this. He uses the same treasure terminology. But we have this treasure, Paul says, in jars of clay. So if you thought you were all that in a bag of chips, Paul says you're actually just a jar of clay. (laughs) All right, we break easy. But we are jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 4 says this, We are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. And I love this because verse 14, he ties this to the resurrection power. Verse 14, he says, Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus... He will also raise us up with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. This is the eternal perspective of the Apostle Paul. If I keep reading in the passage, he says in verse 16, oh, so we don't lose heart. In other words, we don't, we don't let it get to us. This whole thought of death and suffering and persecution, we don't let it drag us down. We don't lose heart. He says, though our outer self is wasting away, quick time out. How many of you feel that every day of your life when you get out of bed? The outer self is wasting away. You know, those knee problems, those ankle problems, those arthritis problems, that memory problem, all of that stuff. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self, it's being renewed day by day. For the light momentary affliction is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory. And here's how he describes this eternal weight of glory. It is beyond all comparison. You can't compare anything to the treasure that we have in the next life. You can't even think of comparing anything to it. For this, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're moving. But the things that are unseen, they are eternal. Brothers and sisters in Jesus, what do we have in Philippians 1? We have a man consumed with an eternal perspective. Life is so much more than what we do right here. Life is so much more than the struggles we go through right here. He lived for the eternal Savior. Paul Paul treasured Christ supremely, and, and his unquestionable model was this, for me to live 
is Christ and to die is gain. Let's keep talking about this a bit though because he goes on in verse 22. He further discusses this and honestly, it's almost like we get a, a glimpse into the brain of the Apostle Paul. You ever had one of those conversations with yourself and you're like, oh boy, I, wish no, I hope no one ever can read my mind. <laughs> well, this is one of those conversations in the Apostle Paul's mind and we all get to read what's going on in Paul's mind, all right? Verse 22, he says this, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. What I shall choose, I I can't tell. (laughs) He says this, and let's just kind of zero in on this part right here, the fruitful labor part. He says, if I am to live in my physical life, it means fruitful labor. In other words, I can continue with the task at hand. I can continue with the labor that God's given me. In other words, if I breathe another breath, it is a breath for Jesus. If I live to go to another day at school, it is going to school for Jesus Christ. If I live for another day to work, it's not going to work because I love it so much. Maybe you do. I would say probably a majority of us, sometimes that labor isn't as fun. Going to work, it's going to work because I have an opportunity to shine Jesus I like this concept of labor because there's this misnomer in ministry, if we could just acknowledge this briefly, that only participate in the ministry if it makes you smile. Only participate if that is your driving passion. Only participate in ministry if it sort of like reaches your comfort level. I mean, I've negotiated with this in my own mind and thought, Clearly, changing diapers in the nursery is not thrilling. Wiping snotty noses in the CPK, not thrilling. Walking with teens through the agony of relationship, mm, not so thrilling. Mediating a self-centered marital battle, not fun. Walking a family through the devastation of adultery in the home, that's not thrilling. Scrubbing church bathrooms after BBS. Not thrilling. Scraping mac and cheese off the gym floor after the church potluck. Not thrilling. Laboring in all of these things for my treasure, Jesus Christ, absolutely thrilling. That is the heartbeat of the Apostle Paul. It is labor intensive, this ministry. Ministry takes work, it takes effort, and sometimes it's not going to bring a smile until we realize that why are we doing all of this? It is for our treasure, Jesus Christ, and this is what he's called us to. Um, In quick application, if, if you are here and you are alive, God is not done with you. There is king's work to be done There is fruitful labor to be accomplished. And Paul says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. I'm going to keep working and keep working until God sends me on. And then he says this, yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. And actually, some of your translations will actually take the first part of that phrase in the form of a question. What what do we mean? Which one would I prefer? (laughs) I mean, it's kind of like that, Dad, what would you like better? uh, Imagine... What's that game my son plays with me? Imagine if, Dad, would you rather, would you rather, Dad, in all these scenarios he comes up with? 
I mean, I'm not going to even get into some of them because they're really nasty. But dad, would you rather? I think of that with the Apostle Paul. What would I rather do? He says, what I would rather do, I can't really tell. And I, and I think Paul's answer is, I, I don't really know what to choose, but to be honest with you, I, it's not really in my ballpark because I'm going to keep serving Jesus because he's the one that's going to decide when my life will end. He's the one that's going to tell me when I'm done. I, I don't get the luxury of figuring that out, Paul's saying. I cannot tell. And then he continues on in verse 23, but I am hard-pressed between the two. I mean, this concept of hard-pressed is like, and if you walk through some of those slot canyons and your way just narrows closer and closer and closer and closer until you have to go sideways and you're inching your way through there and you think, what if a, a, a flash flood comes on here? I'm dead. I mean, the walls keep closing in. Or the other opposite is you're going on a hike. We used to hike these 14ers. And you're on this hike and you come across this razorback where you have to walk and it gets narrower and narrower and more narrow. Do you understand what I'm saying? Paul's like, I'm hard pressed. I can't tell you which side I want to go off on. Both is going to be good. I mean, those are both negative examples. <laughs> but this is a very positive thing for the Apostle Paul. I can't tell you. Both of these are amazingly good for me. I can serve Jesus while I'm here, or I can go be with Jesus. And then we see, though, another layer of Paul's thinking come out in this verse, because he can't help himself but talk about his treasure. Here's what he says. My desire, if you really want to know, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. My longing, my passion, my treasure is to be with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It says if Paul was saying, Church of Philippi, you're a wonderful group. I love you. And we know the relationships built here. We've already talked about that context. But you're a beautiful group, Church of Philippi. I love you, but you don't even compare to the beauty of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says this in terms of this treasure. It is far better. To be with Jesus is supremely better. It's so much, much, much more better. Um, I, we're going to keep moving through here to wrap this up in a bit, but do you remember this song? I, I was singing this all, there's a couple songs that I was singing all week this week. And I honestly think if the Apostle Paul would have known this song, he would have been singing it while he's writing this. This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. You know that song? The angels beckon me from heaven's open door and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. I mean, that was written years later, like two millennial after, millennia after Paul. But I honestly think if that, verse was around, if that song was around, Paul would have been stopping his, his pen, or actually stopping dictating to the guy writing this, and he would have just said, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. My treasure is laid up somewhere beyond the blue. So what's the point here? I mean, let's wrap this up, these verses. What is the point? Paul clearly in this passage lives with the resolve to eternally treasure Christ in this life or the next. This was Paul's all-consuming treasure was Jesus Christ. When we think of this in terms of heaven, if I could just mention this for a minute, because this is the temptation of my own mind. 
when I reference heaven, sometimes I think of it in terms of no pain, no sorrow, streets of gold, pure river, saints and loved ones gone before. All of these songs highlight the beauties of heaven. And maybe you're the same way. And that's in the scriptures. I was talking with my kids halfway through the week. We were t- discussing this one breakfast morning. Thinking about all the beautiful things about heaven. I mean, it astounds us as you walk through the end of Revelation and see this beauty of this heaven. But then I, I go to a passage like this where Paul talks about dying and he doesn't focus on all these peripheral issues. What does he focus on about heaven? Jesus. Jesus will be there. My mind goes to what John says in John 17 verse 3. And this is life eternal. Not that you would have all this really cool stuff. But this is life eternal. That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. I mean, in my mind, I constantly negotiate with this question. If, if all of that good stuff that I mentioned about heaven, if all of that were taken off the scene, and none of that would be in heaven, and the only thing, the only object in heaven was the person, Jesus Christ, would I still want to go to heaven? That's how I know my treasure. In fact, I was thinking through a sermon, listening to a sermon from uh, reading actually a sermon from John Piper. He's, he's mentioned this several times through the years, but last year he, he was talking through this, and here's a quote from him as he's w- reading through this, this discussion on heaven. He says, we don't receive Jesus in a saving way when we receive him as a ticket out of hell or into heaven. Jesus is not a ticket. He's a treasure. He's not a ticket to heaven. He is heaven. He's what makes heaven heaven. It's a devastating question, Piper says. When I go around and ask groups, what if you could go to heaven someday and you would have perfect health, perfect mental presence, no depression anymore, all the friends you want there, and any kind of leisure you can imagine, but Jesus is not there, would that be okay for you? The scary thing is, Piper continues, the scary thing is how many people think all of that stuff is what heaven is. That's not what heaven is, Piper says. Jesus is heaven. If you are trying to receive Jesus as a way to get you what you want, but not him, you're not receiving Jesus, you're using Jesus. I'm going to tell you, brothers and sisters in Christ, the emphatic answer to this treasure in the book of the New Testament in our Bibles, and actually all the way through the Bible, is do we seek and Savior Jesus above all else? That next life... Is it like, if I live here, that's good, but if I die, I'm going to be with Jesus, which is far better. There was a 17th century Scottish pastor named Samuel Rutherford. I love what he said. He says this, oh, he praised this. Oh, my Lord Jesus Christ, if I could be in heaven without thee, it would be a hell. And if I could be in hell and have thee still, It would be a heaven to me, for thou art all the heaven I want. This is what it means to treasure Jesus Christ. This resolve is a gospel-centered resolve. And we find this key idea, as we wrap this up, we can summarize this in the one simple statement this morning. Could we say this? We must live with a resolve to treasure Christ eternally. He is our eternal treasure.
Not all the superficial stuff. Those are blessings from God. That will happen according to the scriptures. But what is the best thing ever? The supreme treasure of our lives is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But I, I want us to look at this, though, because we must live with a resolve to treasure Christ eternally. So when you read something like that, you're like, yeah, I'll do it. I'll get her done. I'm going to treasure Jesus today. Arr! <laughs> right? But, but I'm going to say, in, in this passage, you, we can't do it on our own. We cannot treasure Jesus the way we need to treasure Jesus. That's why we take it within the terms of a gospel-centered life. Here's the idea. Because God has radically changed our lives through the gospel, now we can treasure Jesus. It's through the indwelling Holy Spirit that we can now treasure Jesus Christ. Much more could be said about this, but this resolve is gospel-centered. It cannot happen on our own. It is through dependence on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is through saturating our lives in the blessed word of God. It's through dependence on the Holy Spirit of God to get us, to enable us to take another step. This question about what we must uh, treasure is something we're going to navigate through all day long, our whole lives when we wake up in the morning, when we go to bed at night, all the way through the, the between, when we stop for our lunchtime, what have I been treasuring today? Have I been treasuring my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And this brings us to a simple so what. If we navigate through this passage and don't ask this question, we, we have a problem. So what? How is this passage going to radically change our lives this week? How, how is it going to impact our lives? I would pose this question. Simple question. What or who do I treasure most in my life? I, I intended that in a first-person possessive pronoun. What do I treasure most in my life? Because this is something we need to ask ourselves. Would you think about that? And take a minute and ask, what holds the most value in my life? What holds the primary value in my life? Is it your job, your hobbies, your sports, your security, your comfort, even something good like your family, something that God wants us to have primary but not supreme in our lives. A good barometer, I think, of this for me is what do I spend the most time doing and what do I spend the most time talking about? You often see someone's treasure by how they spend their time and what they talk about. Do I talk of my treasure incessantly? Do I spend time with my treasure, Jesus Christ, constantly? My prayer for Cross Point Community Church, all of us here, is that we would be a congregation of followers of Jesus Christ from young to old who seek and savor Jesus Christ above all else, who treasure Christ above all else to the last heartbeat, the last brainwave, the last breath we breathed. Another song that's been going on in my mind this week was written by one Fanny Crosby. Many of you might recognize her. Lived in the 19th century and probably, very possibly, the most prolific hymn writer in all of history. Wrote over 8,000 hymns. She did this as a blind woman. Blinded as an infant through a medical accident, incident. And her heartbeat was to treasure Jesus, and it came out in all of these hymns that she wrote. About her blindness, here's what Fanny Crosby said. If I had a choice, I would still choose to remain blind. 
for when I die, the first face I will ever see will be the face of my blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. As an 80-year-old saint, in love with her Savior, she, Savior, she penned the words to this hymn. When my life work is ended, and I, I can't read this, sorry, without tears coming to my eyes. I'm going to try when my life work is ended and I cross the swelling tide, when the bright and glorious morning I shall see, I shall know my Redeemer when I reach the other side, and his, his smile will be the first to welcome me. I will know him, I shall know him, and redeemed by his side I shall stand. I shall know him, I shall know him, by the prints of the nails in his hand. She says this in this hymn, Oh, the soul-thrilling rapture when I view his blessed face and the luster of his kindly beaming eyes. Oh, how my full heart will praise him for the mercy, love, and grace that prepare for me a mansion in the sky. Through the gates of that city, in a robe of spotless white, he will lead me where no tears will ever fall. In the glad song of ages, I shall mingle with delight, but I long to meet my Savior, first of all. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain.